Um, I apologize ahead of time for the sniffles that I have. I know that can be really distracting and it's annoying even to me. Uh, but, and Curtis was, he knew I was sick. He's all, you want me to teach for you on Sunday? I said, no, we're going to do the book of Revelation. So not going to miss it. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to be going through this for the next few weeks, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And this morning we're going to uh, get through, I uh, hopefully, the first eight verses. I want to read that to you and then pray. And um, it's going to be, there's going to be, I'm going to try to introduce the book and try to make some connections, try to lay some found, a foundation uh, for, for the rest of the book, as well as go through these first eight verses. And so with the Lord's uh, guidance and uh, provision and will, I hope to be able to do that this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together where we can meet and study your word, Lord, where we can come to you and know uh, the, the, the plans that you have for us. And we know, Lord, that they're plans of good, um, not plans of evil. And, uh, Lord, we're grateful that you make your plans known to your children. And as we study through this, I pray, God, mostly that you would make yourself known to us. That we would see you in all of your glory. That we would know you as the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings, as well as our Savior. Father, we love you, and we ask, God, now that you would teach us by your Spirit, Lord, that you would uh, set up your throne, uh, that we would allow you, Lord, to set up your throne in our hearts again, that there would be nothing else, Lord, to, to share that space in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. And Lord, we know that you're the King, and uh, we submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of, the, of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who, is, who, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Some good stuff right here. And I think these first eight verses, as I already mentioned, really set the stage for everything else that we read. And if you don't begin with a good foundation, we know this true in, in construction, that the whole house or the building doesn't have a chance of standing. We know in our own life, spiritually, that if you don't have a good spiritual foundation, meaning Jesus Christ, the rock, the solid rock, if we build a house upon that spirit, anything other than the word of the Lord and, and Jesus Christ, that spiritually our lives are, are at risk. And, and when we study God's word and, and we begin to discern it and, and uh, take it in, we want to begin with a good foundation. And what I mean by that, a good foundation when we study God's word contextually is to um, look at the overall message 
to be able to get a proper context before we go through these bite-sized pieces that we're going to take to look at the, 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 the whole picture. And these first eight verses, when we look at them in context, really give us a whole picture for everything else that we we're going to read and study about. And the truth is, is if we don't see the bigger picture, we're gonna, we're gonna, we can go off in directions that, that aren't right, that, that are... are are uh, not that where the, the intention isn't there in, in, in what we may read a little later on. We want to keep it all in context of this foundation that's being laid in these first eight verses. So, with that, back in verse one, the things that you, the very first thing that you have to understand when you come to the book of Revelation is that the who and what of this book, the who and the what this book is about is clearly identified for us here in verse 1. We don't have to guess. And, and, and it tells us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ regarding the things that must take place shortly or shortly take place. The who and the what. So everything else to follow that we're going to read about in the, in the chapters that, that, that come up and the verses that come up, everything is going to be brought into this light, the who and the what, the revelation of Jesus Christ regarding things that must shortly take place. And, and when we're told that this book is the revelation of Jesus, we are in one sense being told that it belongs to him. It's come from him, right? He's the one that's delivered it. And, and, and it's his revelation. He's, he's the one doing the revealing. And um, this word revelation is, is kind of got lost, the meaning of it in translation down through time, especially as we, we may look at it in light of some of the things that we've been told or some of the things that we've, we've interpreted upon our own. But the word revelation here is translated from the Greek word apocalypsis. And, um, and from this, we derive, of course, our English word, apocalypse, right? And when we talk about the book of Revelation and the things that are coming, everybody goes, it's the, the great apocalypse is coming, right? And that word has come to mean a great chaos or a great catastrophe. But in the original Greek, the word simply means this, to unveil, to uncover, or to reveal and in this book, which details the revelation of Jesus Christ, literally the veil or the curtain that is concerning the future is pulled back so that we might see our Savior, Jesus Christ. The who and the what. That we might see our Savior, Jesus Christ, specifically he who died on the cross and rose from the grid, the dead, so that we might see him in all of his resurrected glory. The veil is being pulled back. There's an uncovering to reveal our Savior, Jesus Christ, in all of his resurrected glory. And, and I love it that we ended with the Gospel of Luke where we seen Jesus where he had risen from the dead and there was already certain aspects of his resurrected glory being revealed. He could appear in rooms. He, he was in flesh form. He, he had certain attributes. But there's very little that's revealed to us in any of the Gospel accounts about who and what Jesus is like after the resurrection. Thank God for the, this revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. So in other words, because it does that for us. In other words, when Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, first came into the earth, we know that he came in humility, right? Humbly. As a helpless baby who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, birthed by, the, by Mary the Virgin, and ultimately grew up to be the humble servant of God whose mission it was to seek and to save the lost. And being full of grace and mercy, we're told, we're told that being full of grace and mercy, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all of mankind. So that through our faith in him and by his grace for us, we are forgiven and saved from the wrath of God and the eternal death that we deserve. But as we read this book of Revelation, 
we, we will clearly see that there is more to the person of Jesus than just this helpless baby in the manger and the humble servant on the cross. And in this quote-unquote revelation of Jesus Christ, we see that he is also the resurrected conqueror. He is the victor over sin and death. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the highly exalted priest who ministers to the church. He is the glorified Lamb of God who is reigning on the throne. He is the bridegroom who comes for his bride, us the church, and he is the just and mighty judge who will rule and reign over all of his enemies. And so in this book, this book of Revelation, We are ultimately and primarily blessed as we see and come to know firsthand, intimately and personally, the glorified Jesus who had come to the Apostle Paul while he was held captive on the island of Patmos and made these things that are coming soon known to him. And this is important for us to give our attention to as we look to these future events that that are being made known to us because in Philippians chapter 2, It is to this person, the glorified and resurrected Jesus, who is revealed to us throughout this book, it is to this person that the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is declared in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. It says this, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that that, that at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow of those in heaven, and, and, and of those of the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, we need to understand as we study this book, this is one of these things we cannot lose sight of. Everything funnels back to this. We, cannot under, we, we, we have to understand that as we study this book, we're going to partake in the blessing We're going to partake in the blessing of looking into the future and seeing what our glorified Savior, who is in heaven and will return to this earth, is like. Right, guys? There's a blessing in seeing the Savior on the cross and knowing him. But there's also a blessing in seeing him and knowing him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the blessing that we're going to get, one of the blessings we're going to get from this book. To know him in an intimate, personal way, as is described and defined and revealed to us in the book of Revelation. But we're also going to be blessed as we see and know, as we see and come to know the future or the future fulfillment of his plans. More than just who Christ is as the King of Kings, as the glorified, resurrected Savior, but to see and know the future fulfillment of his plans and his purposes in this world. The things, according to verse 1, look there, which must shortly take place. Meaning, the end of all things as we know it, and the creation, the Bible teaches us, the creation of everything new. Some people would, would want to say the word recreate, and, and in a sense that is true, but I, 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 I shy away from using that because it's, it's not taking something that's broken and restoring it, when, when the Lord recreates or when the Lord comes in and creates all things new, he starts from the ground up, just like he did when, he, when God spoke all things into existence. Now, this book, this book is over 2,000 years old, roughly. It's about 2,000 years old, let's just say that. And I don't think there's any one of us who thinks that God expects us to believe that 2,000 years is a short amount of time. So I must point out that the word shortly here used in verse 1, again, creating a context and a foundation for things as we go forward, that the, the, the Greek word here is the word takos. And that word literally means to come to pass rapidly. 
So what we're being told when we read that these things are the quote-unquote the things which must take place shortly, what we're being told is that when these future events begin to happen, the fulfillment of them which brings the end of all things will take place, tachos, rapidly or quickly. Meaning they, the, that when they begin, they will come to pass within a short amount of time. That when these things begin, they will come to pass in a short amount of time. And because of the events that are, and because of the events that, that, that um, have been taking place recently in our country and really throughout the world that we're living in, I'm convinced. And, and I would challenge you to be convinced as well, not by me, but by your own research and, 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 and discernment. But I'm convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that we're now daily seeing signs which tell us the future plans and purposes of God that we'll be reading about in this book, that they're very near. They're very near. Let me give you an example of why I believe this. If you've ever traveled on the interstate to a faraway city, if you've ever traveled on the interstate by, to a faraway city from wherever you're starting to wherever your destination is, you know that it'll be hundreds of miles between the road signs that tell you that your destination is coming. You know, Utah, 600 miles away, or, you know, Salt Lake City, whatever it is. That the, 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 the road signs are hundreds of miles away. But as your destination, uh, as, as, as you get closer to your destination, what you also know is that the distance between these signs decrease when you are in the last stretch of your journey. Um, and these signs, which, must, which may have been initially hundreds of miles apart, as you get very close, they're only a few miles apart, letting you know that your exit and your off-ramp that takes you to your destination is very near. And ever since this revelation had been given to the Apostle John, nearly 2,000 years ago, there have been evidences. There have been signs telling the world that these future events that are spoken of by Jesus to John, who then wrote them down in this book, there have been evidences and signs saying that these things are coming from, from the moment that this revelation was given. But the evidences, these signs that have been seen over these last, let's say, 2,000 years, have been manifested several hundred years apart from one another. As you look back over a prophetic history or history and looked at prophetic things coming to pass, there have been hundreds of years apart. But but the rate at which these prophetic things, which the Bible speaks about, coming to pass, they've they've recently changed in 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 some of our lifetime. They've re- recently changed with with something of great prophetic significance, which happened on May 14th, 1948. And, and what we know is that on that day, in fulfillment of many prophecies found in the Bible, a prophetic miracle came to pass when Israel, who had not been a nation for 2,000 years, was declared to be a sovereign nation. And, and the Hebrew people, who had not been uh, uh, citizens in their land for nearly 2,000 years were given back their land under that sovereignty declaration of them being a nation. And ever since then, that was a key thing in the prophetic history of events that we're looking at. And, and, the, and, and, and ever since then, ever since that day, May, May 14, 1948, ever since that, the time between the signs the time, the time between the evidences that, that we're looking for that tell us about the end of all things, they, became, they, they, they started to become more and more often. And now, like, like road signs that are rapidly being passed at every mile, we are seeing signs almost every day that tell us that the fulfillment of these things, which are recorded in the book, of the book of Revelation, and the end of all things, which it tells about, it, it, it's near. We see these evidences. We see these signs coming more rapidly, more rapidly, more rapidly. The, the prophetic fulfillment of, of events that the Bible speaks about. In light of this, I want to point out 
in regards to the first coming of the Messiah. When you study out the whole of Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is what laid the prophetic foundation for the coming of the Messiah. When you look back to the Old Testament, there's about roughly, give or take, I say 360 references or prophecies that have been made in regards to the prophetic telling of the coming of the Messiah, where he was born, who he would be, things he would do, uh, uh, what, what his family lineage was, on and on and on and on and on. About 360 references or prophecies that had been given. And each one of these references and prophecies had been perfectly and perfectly fulfilled and, and completely fulfilled when Jesus came. By his coming and by the things that he did. But in regards to biblical evidences or signs that tell us about the second coming of Jesus, which we read about even in these first eight verses, the, 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 the signs and the evidences that tell us about the second coming of Jesus, when you study out the whole of Scripture, is what you see is there are six times as many for the second coming as there was for his first coming in regards to the signs or the evidences. Um, and I point this out in order to illustrate that, really, guys, we have six times as many reasons, six times more reasons to believe in Jesus' second coming, and six times as many things to be looking for that tell us we're getting closest to, closer to Jesus' return. In fact, let me break it down for you. I just don't want to make a statement and leave it hanging. In the Old Testament alone, in regards to the, to the second return of Jesus Christ, and, and uh, the events surrounding it and, 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 and leading up to it and, and taking place while uh, the, about what we're reading about now, there's 1,845 references to Jesus' second return and to his rule specifically as the king of kings here on this earth. Furthermore, there are 17 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, whose primary theme, the primary theme of those books is Jesus' second return and about his rule on this earth. We're studying out the book of Isaiah on our men's group on Friday night, and that's one of those books. In addition to these 17 books, there are 27 books that make up the New Testament, in case you didn't know that. 27 books in the New Testament. And um, out of these 27 books, when you break it down, there's 260 chapters. And there are 7,958 verses in these 26 chapters of these 27 books. And contained in these 260 chapters of the 27 books of the New Testament, there are another 318 specific references to Jesus' second coming, most of which have been made by him. And when we add all of these specific references together, the total that you come up with is 2,163 which is six times as many, when you do the math, of the 360. Six times as many evidences pointing to Jesus' second coming as there were for his first coming, which has already come to pass. Six times as many reasons to believe that Jesus is coming again as the person, here's the key, that he's coming again as the person, right, as the person that the book of Revelation describes him to be, and six times as many reasons to believe that the end and the fulfillment of all things, just as this book defines and prophetically declares, will come to pass. Now before I move on, and while we're talking about numbers, I want you to know that this book is a very Jewish book. Again, I'm laying a foundation for what we're going to read and study. This book is a very Jewish book. And in order to understand what has been written, we need to understand Jewish history. We need to understand Jewish culture. So as we study through this book, I will try to make these connections as we look at them really through a Jewish lens. Also, in order to help us understand this, we must have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. And preparing you guys and leading up to this for the last couple of weeks, I told you if you wanted to be prepared for this, don't so much go and read this book, but read the first five books of the Old Testament. You have to have a working knowledge of the Old Testament in order to be able to rightly interpret and discern what we're reading about here in the book of Revelation. And the fact of the matter is, is that in the, book of the Re in the book of Revelation, listen, here's the reason why. 
in this book, there are 22 chapters, 404 verses. And within these 404 verses, this is going to blow your mind, within the 404 verses of these 22 chapters of this book, this one book, there are 360 direct Old Testament quotes, and 278 of these verses contain allusions to the Old Testament that specifically help us to understand the symbolic illustrations which are used to describe the things that are predicted to come to pass. So as we study through this book, we will be regularly looking back to the Old Testament in order to use what God has already made known to us so that we might accurately understand and biblically discern what God is still yet to do. He's not left it up for us to interpret it on our own. Well, I just think that this symbolic illusion or illustration means this. That's foolish when we know that the Bible in the Old Testament already makes these same illusions, these same symbolic illustrations in the Old Testament. And so we must use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Now, in light of these things, if we look back to the end of verse 1, if you want to look there with me, we first read that this revelation was given to the Apostle John, who simply refers to him as Jesus' servant. Then, if you look again in verse 2, we're told that John says that he bore witness to these words of God and testified to us with this written record of all the things that he had seen and heard, or he heard and saw. And if you look a little bit further, I didn't, I didn't read this yet, but if you look just a little bit ahead to verse 9, we're told that this revelation was made known to him while he was on the small Greek island of Patmos. And church history, when you study out church history, it makes it clear. It tells us that the Apostle John was the pastor of the church in Ephesus prior to being arrested and exiled to this island, this, this island of Patmos. And John's arrest came as a result of the persecution of the church by the Roman emperor Titus Flavius uh, Domitian. Uh, and, and he, like Caesar Nero, demanded, he demanded that the people worship him as their Lord and as their God. And history also teaches us that when John was arrested, it was for refusing to worship the Roman Empire or the Roman Emperor. And for his refusal to do so, they tried to kill John, this leader in the church of Ephesus. They tried to kill him by putting him in a, in a, in a boiling pot of hot oil. However, even though John was put into this boiling pot of oil, he was miraculously unharmed. And because they could not kill him, church history teaches us that this is when they exiled him to the island of Patmos, and we have the specific date. It was 86 AD. Historical records show that. And at that time, Patmos was a small penal island just off of the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea, and we're also told that John remained there until 96 AD. And knowing this, we can accurately determine that then John had to have written this book sometime between 85 and 96, or excuse me, 86 and 96 AD. Now in verse 4, with this understanding, it tells us that this book was originally sent as a letter to seven actual churches in Asia Minor, okay? Ephesus being one of them, the Ephesians being one of them. And of course, Asia Minor today is now modern-day Turkey. But in verse 3, John makes it clear that any believer, including you and I today, will profit from these things that we're reading, especially from the letters that were given to the churches. In fact, God promises a blessing to anyone who would read the book and keep, I think that's the key word there, to read it and keep the things which are written in it, which simply means that there's an obedience, a responsive obedience to the message that we receive. Now, this book of prophecy was not sent to the seven churches in order to satisfy their curiosity about the future, um, about the, the, the fulfillment of future things. Let me say that again, because I, I think when we come to the book of Revelation, we come with this curiosity about future events, and right away, we need to understand that that's not the purpose of the primary purpose of this book. It's not, it's, it wasn't given so that our curiosity about future events could be satisfied. 
Will we be told about some of these future things? Absolutely. But the main point or the main purpose was much more important. It's, it's worth noting. And keep in mind, at this time, God's people were once again going through an intense time of per- persecution. And you know what they needed? They needed encouragement. They were being killed for their faith. They were suffering greatly. The early church were was. And so as they heard this revelation from Jesus and were reminded of the promise of Jesus' return, it was intended to give them strength. It would have given them strength and hope at a time when they were suffering and probably feeling discouraged. But these words of Jesus were more than just a message of encouragement. They were a message that, 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 that was intended to help them to examine their own lives to determine which areas of their lives needed correction. And so as we study this book, likewise for us, the individual messages to the seven churches which are written in chapters 2 and 3 or found in chapters 2 and 3, in light of them, we need to examine our own lives. We need to take encouragement from them for, for the, the time that we're living in. And we need to determine as we look at our own lives the things that need to be corrected in light of what God's Word reveals. In other words, the blessing comes that's spoken of here. The blessing comes when we are hearers and doers of the word, just like we read about in James chapter 1, verse 22. And in light of this, we see how the book of Revelation gives us much more information, gives us much more than just information for prophetic speculation. Okay? And that, 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 that tends to be what most of the focus that people put on it is, is this information for prophetic speculation. It, it, it gives us much more than that. It, and it gives us things to, to keep. And if we um, understand the book of Revelation, if we understand this book and what is in it, it will change the way that we live our lives. If we understand that, it gives us things to keep. That, that our response would be an obedience to the message that is being delivered to us. So as we read and study this book, here's, the, here's how we need to enter into it. We need to enter into it as worshipers. We must approach it as a worshiper of God who desires to know Jesus and desires to do his will. That's what we need to look for. Lord, reveal you to me. Lord, reveal your will to me, your will for my life. And when you, when you come with that attitude, it's an attitude of worship, an attitude of surrender, an attitude of acceptance, a willingness to obey. And so we don't come just as students of the future events that it prophesies about, because if we do, we'll miss out on all that God wishes to bless us with. And it's, 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 it's important to point out, it's worth pointing out that there are, and we'll go over these blessings more specifically, but you can write them down now as far as a reference. There's seven specific blessings mentioned throughout the book of Revelation. There's one here in chapter 1, verse 3. Next one is going to be in chapter 14, verse 13. The third is chapter 16, verse 15. The next one is chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 7, and verse 14. So, go look up some blessings this week. In fact, the number 7, again, 7 blessings, right? The number 7 is a reoccurring number, as you, as you know, if you've read through this book before or if you've heard someone teach it or studied it, the number seven is a reoccurring number found throughout this book. There are seven blessings, there are seven churches, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven stars, seven lampstands, and many other sevens, quote-unquote, in this book that we're going to be studying and reading about. And this is significant because the number seven signifies the number of perfection, the number, more specifically, the number of completion. And, and throughout this book, God tells us how he's going to complete his work and usher in his eternal kingdom. So the book of Revelation is a book of completion. Ultimately, 
It's a book of completion, which tells us about the end or the fullness of all things. And in light of that, what we can determine is that this is ultimately the final plan. It's the final plan given to us from God's perspective, letting us, his children, his friends, know how it's all going to end, how it's all going to conclude. And I think this is an awesome blessing because God has not left us out to just trying to figure out on our own how it's all going to end. And clearly, he tells us what is going to happen. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but there's this sense of an end coming to the whole world. I mean, Hollywood portrays an end in so many movies over and over and over and over again. Why do you think that is? Because God says he's written eternity on the hearts of men. He knows, we know that there's an eternal God and that there's an end to this life as we know it. An end to what is, what is taking place now. And you know what the, what the Hollywood people are doing? They're doing the same thing that every other person except for believers are doing, and they're trying to figure out how it's all going to end. I've been watching this series on Hulu. It's called Revolution. It's a J.J. Abrams series about where there's like these nanos bots that are released. I know, it's silly, but there's these nanobots that are actually released and they suck all the energy out and it's the end as man knows it because now they're back in like caveman times. And, th- and they're killing one another. It's, 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 a, it's a sci-fi kind of a thing, but there's, there's all these different depictions of how the end's gonna come and what it's gonna be like when it does. And, 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 and man is searching for what God has clearly told us is gonna happen. He's revealed it to us. He's not hidden it from us. And in light of this, I want you to see that the Bible as a whole is a complete book. As it begins with the book of Genesis, which is a book of beginnings, which tells about the beginning of all things, like the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, the beginning of the curse, and the beginning of the plans of sinful man's redemption. That's another thing that all of mankind is looking for. How did we come into existence? How did it all begin? God tells us in the very first book of the Bible. It's a book of beginnings. And Revelation is the last book, and it tells us about the end of all things. The end of creation, the end of sin, the end of the curse. And so in verses 4 through 6, as we really kind of begin to look at this now and go into it, in verses 4 through 6, we have this formal greeting to the churches, those who would read this letter about these things. And just like many of the other, old, other New Testament letters, right, there are these two words, grace and peace. And um, the word peace was the formal word of greeting someone in the Hebrew culture, still is, shalom. If you go over to Israel, a lot of people will greet you like that, peace, shalom. And so if you were living in John's day, instead of saying hello or how you are, how you were, or how are you, you would say, you would, you would use this greeting. You would say, especially if you were a Christian believer, this was more synonymous in, in the, those who were of the way, those who were first called Christians, they would say, charis and shalom, grace and peace be with you. But the other reason why these words of greeting are always found in this order is because no one can have a true and lasting peace in their life without first having received the grace of God. And the grace of God is God's unconditional. It's it's God's unmerited favor. And as we read on, we see that this greeting is in fact coming, I love this, part of it is coming from all three persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, all three of them, grace and peace to you. So if we look at this, you'll see in verse 4 first where it says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And this is a reference to the eternal aspect of God the Father, the one who is without a beginning, the one who is without an end. In other words, God the Father is described as the eternal one, and therefore all of the past, all of the present, and all of the future is part of his eternal plan. In addition to this, we see, we read at the end of verse 4 that this greeting, we're told, also comes from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And the Bible tells us that there is one God, there is one spirit, not seven spirits. And so as I already pointed out, the number seven represents perfection and completion 
and that this book, I also pointed out that this book is a Jewish book, and the symbolism within this Jewish book is unlocked by a knowledge that comes from the Old Testament. And so if we look to the Old Testament, specifically to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we can deduct that this reference to the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, this reference is, is a, a reference to the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, where it is mentioned there in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Not just the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, but more specifically, I think, to the complete ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we live under and in today. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 22, there's this reference saying to this, that this says, it says, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So, so grace and peace from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and lastly, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, it says there, which is a declaration that Jesus has fully revealed the Father to us. A faithful witness. What did he come to witness of? Who did he come to connect us to? The Father. The firstborn from the dead, meaning he has risen from the grave into everlasting life. And we too are promised, him being the firstborn from the dead, the Jesus, the Son of God, we're promised that like him we will also be resurrected one day into eternal life. He's gone before us. He's shown us the way. The ruler, it says also here about him, that he's the ruler of the earth who has washed away our sins by his own blood, making us priests and kings. Which speaks of this I love this, of this internal inheritance that has been given to us as a result of his payment for our sins and of our adoption into the family of God that makes us, as the Bible says, a co-inheritor with Jesus, the Son of God. And then in verses 7 and 8, it says this, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was, who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And in these last verses that we're going to look at this morning, in these two verses, there's the summary, a summarization for us of the overriding theme of this letter. And the overriding theme, the overriding theme of this letter is the return of Jesus Christ. Get excited about this. The return of Jesus Christ to defeat all evil and to establish his kingdom here on this earth. Amen? Amen. That's what the Apostle John writes here. He's hearing this and he's all, even so, amen. Amen. He said, Jesus came to me to give me this revelation, and it's, it's what he said is, I'm coming back to defeat all evil and to establish my kingdom on this earth. You don't think John was excited about that? John was excited about that. And we should be excited about this message. And this book is a book that tells us of God's victory, a victory that began at the cross with the redemption of our souls. And this is mentioned throughout all of this book as God's people within this book are described by this one word, overcomers. I love that. We're overcomers. Eleven different times we're mentioned in this one revelation of Christ by that word, overcomers. And with this, we understand that we can take heart. We understand that we can be encouraged that in the end, neither the things of this world or Satan himself will have any victory over us. The statement in verse 7 that tells us that Jesus is coming with the clouds, that is a description for us. It describes his return to the earth. And what it does is it shows us that it's not the same as his return in the air to catch away his people, which is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Two different events, similar but, but two distinct separate events. In fact, in those passages where it talks about Jesus' return in the clouds, where at that time we're told where he'll catch up his people, 
which is spoken of again in 1 Thessalonians, again, chapter 4, and in chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians, in those passages we're told that when Jesus comes to take his bride, us, his church, it says specifically that it will be unexpectedly like a thief. And at that time, only those who have been born of the Spirit of God will see him, is what we're told. Only those who are born of the Spirit of God will see him. And yet this event described in verse 7, it says what? It will be witnessed by the whole world. Every, every eye will see him. And especially by those who pierced him, the nation of Israel. And they will look upon his pierced body. And, and, and according to Zechariah chapter 12 verse, and chapter 13, which also speaks prophetically about the second coming of the Messiah, and, and specifically in regards to the, the, the Hebrew people, it tells us in those chapters that the Hebrew people will then ask Christ at that time, how'd you get your wounds? And it says they will mourn and they will repent of their rebellion and of their unbelief. So once the church has been raptured, then the events described here in Revelations chapter or Revelation chapter 6 through 19, that's when these things will come to pass. And these events are what is referred to as the tribulation, right? The great tribulation, which is ultimately the outpouring of God's wrath. Ultimately, it culminates with the bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth, and at that time, it says, we're told that he will set up his kingdom and rule and reign as the righteous king of kings. And looking back to the Old Testament once again, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, we're told that this time of tribulation will last for seven years. I don't have time to go into all the, the seven 70 weeks of Daniel yet, but we know from that prophecy that this last week of years, these last seven years, is, is this, this appointed time of tribulation. As we study through the book of Revelation, we will find measurements of time as we study through this and lay out a timeline. What we're going to see is, is we will see measurements of time that coincide exactly with the seven-year time span that Daniel prophesied about. So we'll, we'll take time to go through it as we go through these, these upcoming chapters. And, 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 and the titles given here, I want to I kind of end with this. I want to wrap it up with this. If Debbie, the worship team, wants to come up. These titles given to God in verse 8, if you look at that, I want to break them down. It makes it clear that he is able to work out his plan and to bring all things to completion, Okay? That's what we're being told here. It's just not this. It's, these are praiseworthy things, and this is something that we might say as we're praising God and recognizing who he is. But this, this testimony and this reminder of who he is, at this point, as we set a foundation for what, to, what is to come, is it, is it gives us this assurance. It reminds us that he's able to work out his plan, this plan that he gives us, and to bring all of these things to completion. Why? Because he's the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? He's the first and the last. These are the first and the last Greek letters of the alphabet. So God, he's at the beginning of all things. And because he's been at the beginning of all things, it's right for us to conclude that he'll be at the end of all things. He is the eternal God, which means he is unlimited by time. He is also the Almighty, which means he is able to do anything and God the Father is called the Alpha and Omega here in chapter 1, verse 8, and then again in chapter 21, verse 6. But this name is also applied to, I want to let you know as we close, it's also applied to, the son of, the, to Jesus, the Son, here in chapter 1, verse 11. And then again in chapter 22, verse 13. And likewise, the title to the first and the last, which goes back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, is chapter 41, verse chapter 44, and chapter 48. All of these things foretell of the Redeemer. And I point these things out to demonstrate, to illustrate, to solidify that contrary to what many false religions teach today, that the Bible for us clearly teaches us that Jesus is God who came in the flesh. He is God who came in the flesh to die on the cross, giving his life and payment for our sins, and that after three days, he being God, rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And listen, and one day very soon, as we look at this, this book of Revelation and study through it, we see that one day very soon, he being God in the flesh will come for a second time. 
And he's coming to set up his kingdom on this earth. And so as we end, there's a question that we have to ask each one of ourselves, a question that I pose, a question that these verses demands that we answer. And the question as we dive into this book is this, are you ready for his return? Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? And for the unbeliever, this means that you have to reconcile this truth and accept or deny Christ, one or the other. And if you deny him, you will not be prepared. If you accept him and receive the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God has purchased for you through his son Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you'll be ready. And then for us as believers who have already come to that place where we've received that gift of salvation, accepted God's gift of grace, and, and, and have mercifully been forgiven and, and given the gift of eternal life, the question that we need to ask as we wait for the Lord's return to that time when we hear the trumpet sound and are caught up into the sky is, is, is the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we being the faithful servant? Are we now revealing the glorified and resurrected King of Kings, Lord of Lords, by the way that we live? That's the question. So I challenge you as we prepare ourselves to receive the blessings that God has for us as we study through this book, to ask those questions, to let God search your heart, to reveal these areas of our lives that need to be refined and that we would be blessed as we study through this and see and know Jesus is Lord and his plans and his purposes for our lives and for the future that is to come. Let's pray. Lord, we ask God that you would speak to us. Lord, that we would look forward to your return and that it would change the way that we live today that it would influence the decisions that we make, that we would not let anything else truly, Lord, uh, be primary in that decision-making process, that we would look at everything through the lens of your promises that are made to us about your future plans and your future will for us. And Lord, we know that's a hard thing to do. We live in this world, and so many times we make temporal decisions with these temporal influences. And um, Lord, we want eternity to influence us. We want eternity to guide us. We want um, your love to motivate us and the knowledge of your return and the encouragement that is found in that. So Lord, I pray you would bury these truths deep in our hearts and our minds so that when we go from this place that they would just be a second nature to us to go... How does this affect and how is this influenced by eternity? Lord, we love you. We live and wait for your return. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Will you guys stand?